Good morning. Thanks uh, to Joan and George both, both uh, for the invitation and the honor of being here and for your hospitality. It's been great to spend a couple of days uh, in conversation with you here at Tyndale. And um, I'm sad I have to leave so quickly. My wife less so, but uh, it's been great to enjoy this. Um, I want to just set up a little bit of what I want to explore this morning by connecting it to something I was talking about last night. And if you weren't here, that's not the end of the world. But one of the the themes I was trying to press is that uh, um, we are formed and shaped in Christian worship, in that encounter with God who is molding us and reforming our loves. And that's why worship ends with sending. The theme was that the the narrative arc of Christian worship brings us to a point where we are then sent out into the world as God's ambassadors, God's image bearers, to take up the missio dei, the work of what God is doing in his creation. And one of the themes I tried to invite us to think about is to see that our mission is not narrowly an evangelistic one, although obviously it includes that, but that our mission is actually to be human. (laughs) Our mission that we are prepared for in Christian worship is actually the reaffirmation of the mission humanity was given in the garden, which was to bear God's image by cultivating the earth and unpacking all of creation's potential Uh, and unfurling the capacity that God has sort of folded into creation. I often think of, uh, if you you see that picture in Genesis 1, you know, the the world does not get called into existence with art museums and university colleges and uh, uh, um, accountancy firms and so on. All of those good aspects of culture are sort of latent and tacit and waiting to be unpacked and unfolded in creation. And God deputizes humanity to be his image bearers by doing that, by unfolding that potential. And I want to think about that cultural labor that you, you had Andy Crouch here a couple of years ago, that what he calls culture making, right? When you hear culture, you should hear a verb which is to cultivate, to make, to unpack, to tend, to care. And that that labor, that cultural labor then, includes not just narrowly churchy things, if you know what I mean. It also includes a whole array of good work. It includes being good mathematicians and accountants and economists. It includes being nurses and doctors and lawyers. It includes being moms and dads and hockey coaches. All of those are aspects of tending the goodness of God's creation. Now, that's the background then for what I want to explore with you this morning. Because at this point, I think evangelicalism, North American evangelicalism, is at this really perplexing and interesting and confusing crossroads. And I want to set this up because I'm not sure we're all, we are all in the same place. And so the way that the themes this morning are going to land will be different for some of us. I would say it seems to me that evangelicalism in North America reflects a twofold ambiguity right now. First, I do think that there is a significant stream and development in evangelicalism over the last, say, decade where more and more um, conservative Protestants are sort of waking up to or becoming aware of and appreciating this wider sense of what it is to 
carry out God's work in the world. In other words, I think that there are more and more evangelical Christians who are starting to realize that the scope of God's concern is wider than just the eternal destiny of our souls, though it always includes that, but that it also includes God's care for the whole of creation and that therefore good work includes this worldly labor. In other words, I do think that there's a significant strain in development in evangelicalism over the last decade that has started to realize that we are not just kind of waiting to get rapture hooked out of the world and get out of this evil place, but that in fact creation, even in its fallenness and brokenness, is in some sense the space in which God calls us to tend. It's the place that God calls us to steward. It's the place that God calls us to uh, um, care for. Does that make sense? Does that sound familiar? So it's kind of the folks who have been reading N.T. Wright and have been like, oh, wait, you mean we're not just waiting for some sort of disembodied heavenly existence in eternity? That in fact, we are material embodied beings who are supposed to care for and hope for a new earth. Okay, that's one trajectory. The other trajectory that I'm worried, and, and it's that, it's when you start to realize that God is concerned about this worldly realities as well, that then you're gonna start caring about things like cultural engagement, political involvement, and so on, justice, and so on, okay. Then I would say that's one sphere. So some folks are waking up from or are, are sort of overcoming what they inherited as a dualistic view of faithful discipleship. On the other hand, then, I think the other side of the story is that some folks ha have already got over their sort of dualistic view of, you know, heaven is my home and I can't wait to get out of the world version of Christianity. They have actually so already worked through that that they are now on the precipice of a different challenge and danger, which is they are forgetting heaven. <laughs> in other words, there's, there, you can fall off the wagon here in two different ways. There are two different ways to be a dualist, in a sense. And, and I, I understand those... Um, uh, evangelicals who have a newfound appreciation for the fact that God affirms the goodness of creaturely life. I think that's significant. I just want to also point out that there is, we are already seeing evidences of folks who have so eagerly embraced this worldly creaturely life that they seem to have forgotten eternity. Now that, if, that might be, that danger might not be the most live problem at Tyndale University College. I, I don't know. But it's part of, that, that map is part of what I am working in and what I'm trying to think about in this project. This is, the, this, this morning I'm trying to give you a little bit of a s scoop on what I'm thinking about in volume three in my cultural liturgies project. And I want to go back to St. Augustine. Uh, in particular, St. Augustine's analysis in his classic magisterial work called The City of God as a resource for contemporary Christians to think about what does it look like for me to faithfully engage culture? What does it look like for me to be faithfully participating in and desiring the renewal of culture? Pursuing justice and yet with still a deep sense of my being oriented to the heavenly city. I think one of the things that we are working through and working out is what Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls a kind of unintended byproduct of the Reformation. 
Okay? So Taylor says one of the things that was going on in the Protestant Reformation is that actually there was a newfound affirmation of this worldly, human, creaturely, domestic life. Right? Before the Reformation, what had happened is you got a sort of two-tiered view of Christians, and the people who are really super serious Christians, the ones who are really holy, were monks, nuns, cloistered priests, and so on, right? And they were really pursuing heaven, and the rest of us were like, okay, you might get there, but if you were really serious, you wouldn't be having babies, and you wouldn't be making horseshoes, and you wouldn't, you know, because those are secular things to do, right? The religious folks are pursuing sacred life. The Protestant Reformation, John Calvin is, uh, uh, I think, the, well, I think he's the poster child for this. He gets it. He says, wait a second, wait a second. Uh, uh, God is equally concerned with the realities and goodness of ordinary life. And so Taylor says the Protestant Reformation unleashes a newfound sanctification of ordinary life. In other words, you could follow Jesus, you could be pursuing holiness by having babies, by, having, by being parents, by being butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers. All of those vocations were just as holy as being pastors and priests and missionaries. Okay? So you, there's a leveling of the playing field and there is a sanctification of ordinary life. But Taylor says it doesn't take that long before that good, creational, biblical affirmation of ordinary life starts to turn into a kind of fixation on this worldly life, and you start sort of forgetting eternity. You start forgetting transcendence, and before you know it, you are enclosed in this disenchanted world where all we have is this worldly life. That's not what the Protestant reformers ever intended, and yet in some ways it was a kind of unintended byproduct. It's a sort of Frankensteinish effect of what were their good intentions. And I think that's instructive precisely if you are witnessing a sort of newfound, eager, evangelical affirmation of this worldly life. The danger on the other side of that is that you end up with only this worldly life. In other words, there are ways in which, I don't want to be alarmist, but I think there are, there are legitimate concerns that the newfound eager affirmation of earthly, creaturely, this worldly life can be the sort of beginnings of how to learn to be liberal Protestants again. And there's, I, I think it's a legitimate concern that we need to watch out for, and I think I want to suggest that St. Augustine is a bit of an antidote to that. Because St. Augustine gives us a way to both think positively about our participation in creaturely cultural renewal, while at the same time keeping us oriented and indexed to an ultimate vision in the city of God that doesn't let us get sort of enclosed within what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. So let me think about this a little bit with you. My friend and uh, colleague Hans Borsma, who's the J.I. Packer Professor of Theology at Regent College. Whenever you can call somebody the J.I. Packer Professor of anything, that comes with a lot of street cred, right? So I want to make sure Hans gets the street cred. But uh, um, in his book, I, which I think is a really masterful book called Heavenly Participation, Borsma is motivated by a similar worry. 
as Protestantism valorizes the goodness of creation and of imminent life, he says, it risks disenchanting the world, unhooking it from its subsistence in the sun. I'm thinking of Colossians chapter one, right? Colossians chapter one is the most fabulous sort of compact, compressed, Christological picture of creation, right? Where all things subsist in, hang together in the sun, right? So you both have the goodness of creation, but now you also have the sense that it participates in the life of God in significant ways. Borsman is worried that people are sort of affirming creation, but forgetting that it participates in the sun, <laughs> Right? They're losing that transcendence of creation. And I think there is a political correlate to that, which finds expression in a kind of new evangelical activism. And that activism can either have a sort of left-wing or right-wing version of it, where evangelical activists are bent on sort of almost like they think they can instantiate the kingdom of God themselves by their efforts. And they're thus more prone to being hooked and hoodwinked by ideologies whose provenance is, in fact, what Augustine would call the earthly city. So Borisman is concerned that younger evangelicals who are overreacting to the sort of otherworldly piety of their fundamentalist heritage have swung the pendulum in the other direction. And so he counters this really sort of surprising par sparring partner in his book, he calls it anti-heaven evangelicalism. Anti-heaven evangelicalism. Now, I'm guessing, I, again, I don't, I'm guessing that that sounds like almost a nonsensical term for most of us here at Tyndale University College and Seminary. I don't know, we, we're, you might not be there yet. I will say, I know these folks, anti-heaven evangelicals. And, and Hans is writing from a little different place. Um, and I, I just want to attest that he's on to something here. And maybe you, if, if you're not there or if we're not there, you could maybe hear this concern as a concern that might be relevant in your future, right? Something to sort of watch out for. Indeed, I, I do think that that's a surprising idea, anti-heaven evangelicalism. What, what would that look like? And I think especially folks like me in this kind of Kuyperian stream of the reform tradition have actually spent our whole careers trying to get otherworldly evangelicals to care about this worldly realities in creation. And so in some ways we would almost feel like that might be an accomplishment if there was an anti-heaven evangelicalism. But Borisma, on the other hand, is rightly worried that the pendulum has already swung the other way and that in fact what's happening is we are eclipsing heaven. If that's the case, I'm going to suggest that if you eclipse heaven, you also lose the heavenly city. And yet, it is precisely our citizenship in the heavenly city that guides our co-mingling, Augustine says, in the earthly city. It's our pilgrimage toward the heavenly city that helps us navigate the terrain in this fallen but redeemed creation. The politics of the city of God finds its center in an ecclesiology, in the body of Christ, in the church, that becomes the space for cultivating what I'm going to call holy ambivalence. I think the posture and stance of Christians who want to engage culture, participate in cultural renewal, actually needs to be a kind of sanctified, holy ambivalence. 
That's not aloofness, that's not withdrawal, that's not uninterestedness, but it's also not over-identifying with the structures of the earthly city. And so I want to use Augustine's City of God. For, for those of you who aren't familiar, so Augustine is a North African bishop, late 4th century, early 5th century, okay? One of the great doctors of the church. He is the doctor of the church. He is the bomb in my books, okay? And uh, the City of God is a late work uh, published around 410. And I want to give a little bit of context. Um, so he is writing this uh, at a time that the Roman Empire is beginning to crumble. Okay? Now remember, in 410 then, he's writing the city of God a hundred years after Constantine has sort of declared Christianity as sort of the empire's official religion in a sense. Okay? So in, other, in a way, the empire has kind of been Christian for a hundred years. But now, all of a sudden, the Roman Empire is collapsing. And do you know what happened? Is a lot of the other Romans, skeptical pagan Romans, started looking around and they said, this is Christianity's fault. If we hadn't sort of bought into this weird Christian God, we would still be this powerful empire that we are. The fact that the empire is collapsing is itself a problem that, that has resulted with our identification with Christianity. Okay? That's part of the audience that Augustine is writing to when he writes The City of God. The other thing that's going on is this. For a hundred years, a bunch of Christians had thought Rome was the kingdom of heaven. Right? In other words, for a hundred years, Christians like, even including Christians like Jerome and, 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 and uh, uh, others, had in some sense so identified the Roman Empire with the kingdom of God Right? They had just thought, oh, well, that's, it's the kingdom of God on earth is in the empire. We're a Christian empire now, therefore heaven has arrived. That you can imagine what's going on. If the Roman Empire is starting to dissolve, does that mean the city of God? Does that mean the kingdom of God is losing? Right? Because they had over-identified the two. So, in response to both of those sorts of concerns, Augustine comes up with a basic distinction that I want us to understand in order to be able to make sense of some of what I want to say later. Augustine articulates a famous distinction between what he calls the earthly city, or the city of man, and the heavenly city, or the city of God. This is where, if I knew how to use PowerPoint, this would be a good time, right? To have sort of, does this work as an illustration for you? I use chalk usually, but um, so imagine that he, he distinguishes the earthly city or the city of man um, from the heavenly city or the city of God. Now, the first trick though is to not misunderstand that distinction. The distinction between the earthly city and the heavenly city is not the distinction between this material creation and some ethereal heavenly place. Okay, that's, that's the first way that especially English readers, I think, misunderstand Augustine's distinction. The distinction between the earthly city and the heavenly city is not the distinction between creation and heaven. Why? Because for Augustine, the earthly city begins not with creation and not with time, but with the fall. The earthly city is the fallen, disordered way that humans construct society. The earthly city is the broken, fallen, sinful, disordered way of organizing human life. The city of God is indexed to heaven and is, 
in, 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 in over which Christ is king, and yet it also includes Christians in this worldly life. Does that make sense? So don't think of it as a earth-heaven distinction. Think of it more as what defines the loves of these two cities. What distinguishes the two cities is not their places, heaven and creation. What distinguishes them is their ultimate loves. And you'll hear resonance with what we talked about for those of you who are here in the first lecture. So what difference would that make? How might Augustine help us think about our own cultural and even political involvement uh, in, in a contemporary era. The, um, I spent my night last night watching election returns because I lived in the United States for almost 20 years and we had a huge midterm election happening. And uh, why would a Christian care about that? Well, I think we, Augustine helps us to understand that because even as Christians who are citizens of the city of God, we are called to live among and amidst the earthly city. On the other hand, Augustine also should give us reason to be carefully cautious and even a bit suspicious about too eagerly diving into our political and cultural context. So that's the holy ambivalence piece of it that I want to think about. Let's start here. In my first lecture, I said, you are what you love. Right? The way to define a human person is our loves, our longings, and desires. Here's what's interesting. Augustine says the same thing is true socially and politically. We are what we love. What defines a people, what defines a polis, is the Greek word, what defines a republic, is also the ultimate aim or end of their loves. Evangelical Protestants, I think, in especially, again, I ha here I have to confess I'm writing now largely from my U.S. experience, but have been some of the most even uh, eager participants in political life and cultural engagement more in generally, precisely because they are eager to leave behind the sort of otherworldly, acultural, anti-political Christianity of their fundamentalist past. Both the religious right and the Christian left are evidence that these evangelical Protestants have shed their otherworldly aloofness. So now what we get are evangelical affirmations of the political in the name of the goodness of creation. Politics is affirmed as one of the spheres of creation over which Christ rightly says, mine. And I, I think that's true. I think that's right. So... Let's enter the political sphere with a sense of divine vocation, remaking the world in the shape of the kingdom, prepping sort of heaven here on earth. There's, there are good biblical, theological, creational reasons why Christians should be engaged in political life. But one of the problems with this sort of eager diving into the political sphere is that it tends to underestimate the strength of the currents already swirling around in that sphere. In other words, uh, to build back to an example I used in my first talk, I remember um, so whenever my kids asked to go to the mall, they say, Dad, will you take us to the temple? Okay? Because the mall is not a neutral space. It's a religious site because it is loaded with liturgies that proclaim in a bodily way the gospel of consumerism and are trying to shape my kids' loves in that experience. Okay? It's not a neutral space. It's a liturgical space. It's a formative space. Well, the same holds true for our political sphere. 
the political sphere is not a neutral, benign, merely formal space. It's already a space that comes loaded with rhythms and rituals and practices that are animated by some ultimate vision of the good. And so when you, when you, when we are, say, sent from the space of Christian worship into our vocations, and if my vocation is to be engaged in political life, I am not stepping into a neutral space. I'm stepping into a space that is already sort of primed in certain directions towards some ultimate vision of the good. And very likely, that is not one that is completely identical with what scripture calls shalom, right? The kingdom vision of flourishing. I'm, I'm putting that in the least, I, I actually think it's highly unlikely that it overlaps with the biblical vision of shalom, but I'm just trying to hedge my bets here a little bit, okay? So, if you fail to appreciate the ways in which political life is also a liturgical space, then your eagerness to simply get out there, you know, do Christian politics will underestimate you. you, you what? Take a breath, Jamie. Here's what happens. You're so fired up to go be a transforming, influencing culture. And I, I want to affirm that, that impetus. I want to affirm that intuition. But if you get so fired up to go out and be a transforming, influencing culture and don't recognize that the culture is not neutral but is forming and is formative, what will happen is, is in the name of transforming, you will end up assimilating. In other words, you go out and think you're going to transform the culture because you're not aware of and you don't recognize the cultural liturgies that are at work in those spaces and the, and the unintended consequences that you end up being the one who's transformed. And instead of the transformation of culture, what we get is the assimilation of the church. Okay? That's, that's the danger. Notice the solution to that is not to avoid being in the culture. I don't think that's an option for us. I don't think we can love our neighbors by staying clean and pure. I, I don't think that's, that's a, a legitimate expression of our calling to be in the world. The calling is to be in the world but not of the world. And I think the way that we undercut that deforming of our political loves and orientation is precisely by becoming aware of the liturgical forces at work in those cultural spheres. At least that's a beginning. I ultimately think from last night that also means you have to be constantly recentered in the story of the gospel in the church's worship. Right? That's that's the uh, uh, um, the space of your formation that counters those other formative spaces. Augustine, interestingly, in the City of God, says exactly this point, that what's going on in the Roman Empire is not and never is just politics. That to participate in the politics of the empire is actually to step into a space that is also always already religious because it is in some sense liturgical. That the rhythms of a political sphere have a kind of liturgical ritual aspect to them that shapes us. 
They are not just neutral procedures that we are going through. And in fact, in, in the City of God, I, I really commend this to you as one of the great classics to tackle at some point in, in your curriculum. Augustine says, look, you will only ever have true justice where you have true worship. You will only ever have true worship where you have rightly ordered love. Right? All of those things, love, worship, and justice, are all intricately bound together for Augustine. Rightly so, I think. And so he says, why would you ever expect that Rome could kind of be the realization of the city of God? Because it could never, ever have true worship. And as long as it doesn't have true worship, it can't ever have the full realization of justice. Worship and justice are bound together. And so Augustine says, look, uh, he doesn't say don't be involved. He says be careful, be aware, recognize that those are spaces that are going to try to shape you, even though you're going out there eagerly saying, I'm going to shape them, right? There's a mutual uh, a formative aspect to this. And so when Augustine looks at the Roman Empire, he judges it as fundamentally disordered because its loves are fundamentally disordered. But interestingly, that does not become an excuse for him to write it off altogether. And this is where I want to introduce some principles. I, I want to lay out what I'm going to call four sort of, I was going to call them practical principles, but I'm a philosopher, so it's never really that practical. But they're sort of fairly concrete, little more concrete principles about how to uh, um, be centered, as we talked about last night, in the city of God, and, and I, I want to say that in some significant substantive way, the congregational expression of worship is like an outpost, an incarnate outpost of the city of God, right? That's why we need that centripetal dynamic where we keep being gathered in that space to be formed in that story, and then sent out into these other spheres, including the political sphere, but doing so now with these sorts of principles in place. So think of it as this. The church is our center of gravity. The church is even, I want to say, our political center of gravity. The church is not apolitical. The church itself in some way enacts a politics. It pictures a kingdom. Right? We are living out an economy. We are living out a society. The church is a kind of society. We find our citizenship centered in that identity, but then from that center of gravity, we lean out into earthly city modes of politics because we need to find ways to collaborate in the meantime, in, in what Augustine calls the seculum, this time between fall and consummation. It's like, do you remember those toys? You probably don't because you're also young, but there used to be these toys called weeble wobbles, right? Wasn't that they were called? They weevil and they wobble and they don't fall down. Because they had this, they had this like huge weight at the bottom of them, and then they were the, these sort of egg-shaped toys. And what would happen is if you just kept pushing them over, they would lean way over, but then they would always snap back to center because they had this deep and low center of gravity. I, that's not a bad picture of what faithful Christian engagement in the culture looks like. Right? I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I've got the cover for my third volume. It's... it's you, you are being centered in Christ in the center of gravity that is the body of Christ, 
right? And so you keep centering. But then because you have that center of gravity, you can lean out into these other spheres and seek to bear witness to God's coming kingdom. So here are four, I want to call them ad hoc sort of principles of cultural engagement. The first is this. Even disordered loves attest to creational desires. Even disordered loves attest to creational desires. Uh, um, what, what Augustine would say is he would look at a culture and he would recognize all the ways that they are sort of twisted and misdirected and disoriented. And yet he could still say that even their disordered loves bore witness to the fact that they longed for something else. The, the, the misdirection of their desires still bore witness to the structural features of being human and being a people. A concrete example of this. Um, so, you know, Rome was famously sort of proud of what they called the Pax Romana. Have you heard that phrase before? The Peace of Rome, okay? The Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome was like their great civilizational accomplishment, right? This is, if, if there were Roman billboards, they would just be blazoned all over the place saying, we are the ones who pulled off the Pax Romana, which was, in a way, this, this in some sense, quite remarkable achievement of a kind of steady state of non-conflict within the boundaries of the Roman Empire, right? The Peace of Rome. Augustine takes up this whole propaganda about the Peace of Rome, and he says, look, if I compare the so-called peace of Rome with the peace of God's shalom that is pictured in Scripture, right? If I compare the peace of Rome with the peace that characterizes the new Jerusalem, the peace of Rome does not even deserve to be called peace. That's a pretty trenchant criticism, right? It's like, don't, that's like it doesn't even really even, you're calling it the peace of Rome, but in a way it's not even really peace would seem very dismissive, except, remember, he's writing this in 410. The, the uh, I know P and S get bad when you do this. The barbarian horde is knocking at the gates of the empire, okay? Everything is in jeopardy. And so when Augustine looks at the peace of Rome, he says that doesn't, compared to the peace of God, that doesn't even deserve to be called peace. But when I look at the peace of Rome compared to the barbarian horde, not bad. I'll, I'll take the peace of Rome, right? So do you notice that what happens is, because he can recognize that even the peace of Rome desires true peace, it doesn't achieve it, it doesn't accomplish it, but it desires it, Augustine can have both a trenchant criticism of it, but will also be able to come around to a kind of qualified affirmation. That leads to the second principle. Every cultural critique is ad hoc. Or to put it other ways, no Christian critique is ever going to be total or absolute. There can always be room to recognize that there is our relative goods even in disordered forms of culture. The peace of Rome is preferred to the barbarian horde, even though the peace of Rome is not what God desires for his creation. So I would suggest that Augustine's sort of tool for cultural analysis is a protractor. 
Do you know what a protractor is? Those semicircle things that measure the degrees of things? And imagine he does his cultural analysis this way. There is a biblical norm and ideal for what God desires for his creation. Let's say the shorthand term we're going to use for that is shalom, flourishing, peace. Uh, um, that's the index norm. That's 90 degrees. Okay. Now what I'm doing culturally, as I assess my own participation and as I'm looking about looking at uh, uh, different aspects of culture, is I, it's not all or nothing. It's never all or nothing. What I'm trying to decide is what is more or less pointed towards the kingdom of God. If I, if I just had an absolute standard and I looked at the peace of Rome, I would be like, nope, that's not the peace of God. We'll have nothing to do with it. But when I look at it in comparison to the barbarian horde, I start to realize, you know what? Even though it's got all these problems, it's actually closer to what God desires for human flourishing. You can do that with all kinds. You can think about healthcare policy. You can think about economic policy. You can think about labor policy. All of those are ways to think about what is more like what God desires for the world. Third principle. Recognize penultimate convergence even when there is ultimate divergence. Wow, there's got to be a pithier way to put that. Here's what I mean. Um, okay, the ultimate sort of good. As a Christian, I have a robust and concrete vision of what God desires for this world from what I know from Scripture. When I encounter... Uh, um, and, 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 and I'm collaborating with an atheist or a Muslim or a Sikh uh, a collaborator in my local city council, let's assume that we know we all have different ultimate visions of the good, right? That's why we are Christian Sikhs, Muslims, and atheists, okay? We have different vision, ultimate visions of the good. However, those different ultimate visions of the good do not preclude penultimate, that is less than ultimate, in the here and now overlapping concerns. The fact that we have ultimate differences does not preclude finding ways for us to collaborate in the penultimate. Because it's not all or nothing. And I, it's not my job to institute the kingdom of heaven here. Right? I'm not imposing the kingdom of heaven here. That leads to the fourth and last principle. Don't lose your eschatology. Don't lose your eschatology. What does that mean? Don't forget that while we are commissioned as God's image bearers, while we are called to be engaged in the good cultural work of stewarding our political life, our economic life, and so on, that is not the same as saying that our job is to make it happen. Our job is not to institute and impose the kingdom, because only God by his grace can bring that about. We are trying to get caught up in what God is doing. God hasn't given it to us as our job to impose the kingdom come. That's post-millennialism. You know, we, ne we never talk about post-millennialism anymore, but post-millennialism is, I think, the functional eschatology of evangelical activism, because we think we are going to bring about the kingdom of heaven. That is Pelagian. That is the assertion of human willpower, and it is, in some significant sense, the refusal of grace. It's, it's a bit like what Borsma was saying. You can't be anti-heaven evangelicals, right? You can't be citizens of the city of God and then think that it's your job 
to institute the city of God. To be a citizen of the city of God is to remember God is king, not us. All of that then should happen with this center of gravity, seeing the church's worship as the political centering of the people of God. And maybe that's part of what what would be a sort of wake-up call for us, is to think about worship as politics. We gather to be sent. We are sent to do, to undertake Christian action that participates in the mission of God. That mission, then, is shorthand to describe what it is for Christians to pursue their vocations to the glory of God and in ways that are oriented to the shalom of the kingdom. But any Christian emphasis on mission and uh, vocation and culture making has to be rooted in a more fundamental concern with what Calvin called last night our dispositional deflection. If the church is a centrifuge, sending out image bearers to take up their commission in God's good but broken world, it also has to be a community of practice that centripetally gathers for that reformation of our loves so that we are then actually sent as citizens of that coming city. In this way, you could say that Christian worship constitutes the civics of the city of God, forming a people who are sent out for the sake of the common good, sent to not only love their neighbors, but maybe even their enemies. Thanks very much.